0: Good morning. It is Friday, February 16th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI TV. I'm Alex Mithin for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Orange coming in quick on a Friday. Coming up on the show today, it is the weekly news panel with Dewita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. They tackle a variety of stories from the week, including the Auditor General report around the development and implementation of the ArriveCan app. They also discuss, uh, discuss a recent incident with Air Canada. The airline was ordered to compensate a BC man after its online chat bot gave inaccurate information around flights. Plus, they consider the recent comments made by Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau, who says the federal government is no longer investing in new road developments. All that and more to come on today's show. But we first begin with the top news stories of the day. The RCMP have announced the formation of a team to tackle extortion and violence in B.C., Alberta and Ontario. Lisa Laporte has the story.
1: The Mounties say the team isn't taking over investigations but will instead provide support in order to facilitate the seamless sharing of information between police forces nationally. Superintendent Adam McIntosh says the Mounties are looking into all similarities and motivations behind the extortion threats that are reportedly tied to organized crime groups. They say the extortionists demand protection money from would-be victims, most of whom are members of the South Asian Business Community Some have seen their businesses targeted by gunfire after refusing to pay. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press.
0: The promotional tour marking the one-year countdown to the Invictus Games continues with Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle visiting sites for the upcoming games. Karen Rebo has more.
1: Prince Harry reached speeds of almost 100 kilometers per hour as he raced down one of the world's fastest bobsled tracks in Whistler on a tiny skeleton sled. Meghan was seen with a huge smile and shock on her face, watching her husband, the co-founder of the Invictus Games for wounded or sick service personnel and veterans, whiz by her at the end of the track. Cowbells rang out as the prince finished his run before he took off his helmet and said, "Everybody
2: should do that."
1: He tried out sit skiing the day before and. Today, they'll be in the other co-host City of Vancouver, where they'll meet athletes at a curling rink. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: In international news, same-sex marriage is now legal in Greece. Tom Rivers has a story. Activists celebrating as the vote was announced near the parliament in Athens. Among them, Nancy Papathanassiou. It's very important for mental health. You know, discrimination, it is one of the most, the most per-
1: pervasive, actually, factor, uh, risk factor for mental health.
0: Greece, now the first Orthodox Christian nation to legalize same-sex civil marriage. Opinion polls suggest most Greeks support the reform by a narrow margin. Tom Rivers, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Reports from Russia claim that imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in prison. Karen Chamas has the latest.
3: Russia's prison service has said that imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. The federal prison service said in a statement that Navalny felt unwell after a walk and lost consciousness. They said an ambulance arrived to try to rehabilitate him, but he died. There was no immediate confirmation of Navalny's death from his team. I'm Karen Chamas.
0: And finally, we're going to end on something a bit lighter, and this will also be the subject of our daily poll today. Chocolate chip ice cream popularity is melting. According to a new survey, Daria Albinger gives you the scoop.
1: You may scream for ice cream, but probably not chocolate chip. The International Dairy Foods Association, and yeah, there is such a thing, says the flavor is no longer among its top 10 ice cream flavors. The reason? Tastes change, as our palates get more adventurous. Now vanilla studded with plenty of dark chocolate chips, a staple at places like Baskin-Robbins and Howard Johnson's for decades, is taking a back seat to things like cookie dough, salted caramel, and banana pudding. Daria Albinger, ABC News.
0: And now it is time for our daily polls. Before we get to today's poll question, we have the results from yesterday's poll where I asked you, how do you feel about the rise of AI-generated voices in content? 6% of you said uh, good, 72% of you said bad, and 22% were indifferent. We had a few different responses uh, to the poll on Facebook. Tony wrote, bad. It takes jobs away from people. Leona commented, bad. What is our fascination with fakery? Philippe wrote in, I would love to hear these audiobooks so much more with some human narrations, especially with some really great sound effects and with some great dramatic and theatrics, uh, theatricals, human narrations. I don't know if AI would be good enough for all of that personally, but It would be fun though. Over on X, Studio Brock wrote in, I voted good and I'm fairly positive on AI overall. I watch lots of AI generated content and it's really impressive how it allows a single creator to make something involving multiple characters. It won't replace the human touch but it should lead to more accessible content. Thank you all very much for chiming in. They're all great points. We now have today's daily poll where I'm finding out from you has to relate to that ice cream story. What is the most overrated ice cream flavor? I know it's February and we're talking ice cream, but I felt it was relevant. Is it vanilla? Is it chocolate? Is it cookie dough or is it other? And if you write in, if you vote other, you need to make sure you leave a comment so we know what your choice is. Let's welcome in John Lepke and Laura Bain to get the inside scoop from them. John, what is the most overrated ice cream flavor? I
4: have to say it's vanilla. I am a fan of the variety of flavors that folks like Ben and Jerry's come out with. Um, I find it really interesting, particularly when they do it around themed uh, events. Um, If anybody's ever looking to buy me ice cream, I'm a fan of the Tonight Dough, which is, uh, cookie dough, uh peanut butter and and fudge. So yeah, I I am certainly of the plan that uh the opinion that plain Jane vanilla is is not um is not the highest of highs on my list.
0: Laura Bain, what about you? What is your hot take on the cold treat?
3: So I'm someone who likes a lot of Different things. I'm sort of the opposite of a picky eater. So there's no particular flavor that I am going to say that I think is overrated. Um, I would eat any of those flavors, no problem. But for me, it comes down to the quality of the ice cream. So, like John, I do gravitate towards the more adventurous flavors at the grocery store. That one that he describes sounds pretty good to me. But I sort of feel like the reason I do that is because most of the ice cream at the grocery store, the quality just isn't that good. and so it can't stand on its own with something like just a chocolate or just a vanilla. So I'm going to go off board here, Alex, and say that I think that some of the big popular brands, which I won't name of ice cream as a whole, are overrated.
0: Okay, well, so I will take a, a, a stance, Laura, even if you won't choose a flavor to uh, to call out, I will, I'm will. i going to call out chocolate. And very similar for the reasons you described, Laura. I find often chocolate gets a pass Just irregardless of the quality of the chocolate ice cream itself. Uh, It's a fan favorite. I never quite understand. I think the subtleties of a vanilla ice cream are far better than a standard chocolate ice cream. I disagree with you, John. I think it's the chocolate, not the vanilla. The vanilla, you can't hide anywhere. Chocolate. You just put chocolate flavoring, people say, oh, it's it's fine, it's chocolate ice cream. No, vanilla, you have to stand out on your quality. What say you to my argument?
4: I say that I would agree with Laura around around the quality argument, and I suppose by extension with you, Alex, in that it's hard to differentiate when you get down that ice cream aisle as to what is actually ice cream and what is branded as frozen dessert because Mm -hmm. there's no actual dairy in it. And, uh, you know, a really, really good vanilla ice cream. I can, I can get behind if I'm looking at, you know, strawberry or, or some, some fruits to go alongside of it. But I, uh, maybe we found one thing that we disagree on, Alex. I had, vanilla still beats out chocolate to the to the bottom of the ranks for
0: me. Uh okay, quickly, uh before I let you both go, what is the most unique or or bizarre flavor of ice cream you guys have ever had? Laura, we'll start with you.
3: Oh, I'm torn between my the two which are <laughs> uh I had a I had some Rockfort, uh which is a type of blue cheese ice cream in France last summer that I am still thinking about to this day
0: now is it are you thinking about it positively or or negatively (laughs) is the question oh
3: very positively yes it was like super super good but i suspect polarizing you know not everyone likes blue cheese in their ice cream
0: well I, i think a lot of people don't like blue cheese in general let alone in ice cream form john what about you what is the most unique or bizarre flavor of ice cream you've ever had
4: you know, I'm I'm struggling to think of unique or bizarre ones that I've had, but I can tell you one that I want to try. There was a YouTube creator called Sorted Food, and they went mm-hmm. through this ice cream creator in Britain that took all of these British flavors. I was born in Britain a- and smashed them into ice cream. And there's one that's mushy pea ice cream, which mm-hmm. just sounds chaotic enough for me to want to try it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've seen that uh, uh, those ice cream flavors as well. They are certainly, you know, out of the ordinary. I think, for me, the most unique one that I've tried, there was a uh, potato-based ice cream that I had that was quite good, and also one uh, that—well, there was actually two different potatoes. One was just a standard potato and fudge. The other one was uh, purple potato. I thought that was uh, very— Good and nice and rich and creamy as well. Okay, we gotta move on. I'm starting to drool already about ice cream. We have the rest of the show to do. Thank you both. We will be checking in with you later on in the show. But for you at home, you can be sure to vote on the poll at Facebook on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. on X at Accessible Media. And remember if you vote other, be sure to chime in and let us know what Flavor is most overrated you can also send an email feedback at AMI.ca or pick up the phone 1-866-509-4545 coming up after the break the news panel kicks off with Juwita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. they're going to be discussing the auditor general report around the development and implementation of the Arrived can map you're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI TV Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Mike. You know what that sound means. It's time to assemble the weekly news panel. So let's welcome in our panelists, jo- uh, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Joita is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hello, Joita.
5: Good morning,
0: Alex. And hello to you, Michelle.
6: Hello, friends.
0: Okay, so our first topic has to deal with the Auditor General report on the ArriveCan app. Auditor General Karen Hogan found gross mismanagement during the development of the app, and here's what she had to say.
3: So I looked at a lot of contracting that happened uh, during, during the pandemic, when the public service was act-to-acts quickly um, and, um, you know, serve the public. Uh, this would probably be the, the first example that I've seen where there is such a glaring disregard for some of the most basic and fundamental policies and rules and controls.
0: She pointed to cost overruns and a lack of organization as an example of this.
3: We estimated that it would uh, it cost around $59.5 million. There could be amounts there that should not be linked to ArriveCAN, but there also could be amounts that, that are linked to ArriveCAN that were not flagged in the books um, and linked to that
0: project. And Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc says that uncertainty during the pandemic played a major role in the issues around ArriveCAN. This software was developed during a global pandemic a
1: public health emergency like Canada had not seen in a century. We needed to act quickly to keep Canadians safe and adapt every process accordingly. But we recognize with hindsight that things should have clearly been done differently.
0: Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says the costs and issues around this app development are inexcusable. He's taken sixty million of your tax dollars and given it to a corrupt app arrive scam that doesn't work that we didn't need and that went
2: seven hundred and fifty times over budget.
0: The first Arrive can uh, contract was initially valued at just two point three five million. Okay, so let's explore this topic, uh, and we'll start with you on this one, Juwita. Why has this issue taken so long to get to the forefront? I mean, the development was years ago.
5: Yes, and I think um, it's fair to say that it was put together, as you heard in one of the preceding clips, it was put together in a in a in a bit of a hurry uh, in response to the pandemic. And right from get-go, there were problems. Uh, many users found the system glitchy. They found the app glitchy. Um, and it, there were some questions about how effective it was actually uh, going to be at the end of the day. There were media reports about privacy concerns. And then the really big one was the, the cost overruns that we, we sort of talked about and how wildly over-budget they went with the Arrive Can app. And you heard that in the clip that um, it went over you know, it was two hundred it was supposed to be valued at about two point three million. And then it shot up and was almost close to sixty million dollars. That was the final bill. And when you start to think about, why that is you know when you start to think about why that might have been the case uh, there's a number of different factors that come into play not least of which is that yes it was uh developed during the pandemic and uh, it was an a, you know an unprecedented and a, a public health situation but at the same time it does lead into some larger questions about why it took so long and 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 and, and why things went off the rails to the extent that they did in November 2022, the opposition parties got together and um, and 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 asked the Auditor General to conduct an audit. And I guess it's taken about 15 months for the audit to wrap up. And that was complicated, too, because uh, yeah. there wasn't a lot of documentation. There were a lot of gaps in data and um, things that should have been noted and documented weren't noted and documented. So you have all of these problems that have come uh to the forefront with ArriveCan, um and what made it even more complicated is that the government contracted out to develop the app and there are questions about uh how this company got the contract but then the company itself turned around and handed it off to various subcontractors, which made any form Mm. of accountability even more complicated. So it's no wonder it's taken this long, Uh, but there were questions being asked about ArriveCAN, I think, pretty much from day one.
0: Well, and and, uh, one of the the clips I did not uh, play or include, it it had Auditor General Hogan talking about, well, yeah, just because there there was an unprecedented pandemic doesn't mean you can just throw, you know, the basic order or structure of how, uh, you know, uh, the government should operate and and should kind of proceed with these types of uh, projects, just— you can't just throw that out the window because there still has to be the checks and balances, the organization, the record keeping. Because that was part of the things you mentioned. It's like we don't know. Like there's some things that are tied to this that maybe shouldn't be, and maybe some things that should be tied to the budget and, and the costs that aren't uh, in it. So, Michelle, what did you make of the the timeline around everything coming to to uh, the front, and you know what are the ramifications and where we are right now?
6: Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I would argue personally that the issues with the Rivecan have always kind of been at the forefront. And it's really now that we're, it's truly coming into focus, the scope of the issues that we've only been hearing about in dribs and drabs up, so up until now. And I'm kind of with Joita in attributing the biggest delay to the state of the files. Um, Karen Hogan was very explicit about the mess and a half that she found when she dove into those files There were some records that were not kept at all. The fact that they can't even determine the complete cost of this is very interesting. There were all kinds of, of secondary bizarro things that they could find though, like online whiskey tastings. It raises so many questions about all of this. And, I like it's fairly obvious, I think, to everyone concerned, including the government, that this kind of process went well, well, well beyond pandemic era scramble, which we're all familiar with to some degree. And the government, particularly, they had a lot of programs they were trying to launch at that time. But this is all on a whole other order of magnitude. And I don't—it's yet another black eye for a government that really, really can't afford it right now.
0: Uh, uh-huh. Absolutely. And so, in terms of. That that black guy, as you mentioned, Michelle, Juita, what do you think the political fallout is going to be from this? Like, I, I, I have a personal uh, uh, feeling that this is going to be one of those issues that's going to continue to linger, just based on how long this process has taken so far. And as we move in closer and closer to the next federal election, this is going to be one that's going to keep cycling around and, and be top of mind and a talking point for opposition.
5: Yeah, I I agree. I think this one's going to keep cropping up. Um maybe not, you know, it it maybe it won't make headlines the way it has. Uh, last week, in the last week, but certainly as we look to the next federal election, it is it is going to be something that the opposition is going to point to and say, look how oh, they yeah. mismanaged it. They totally bungled it. Uh, one of the things I do feel I should point out is that although Pierre Poliev has um, indicated that there was quote-unquote corruption, um, the Auditor General mm, yes. did, did not actually find any evidence of mm-hmm. corruption, and I think that's really important to make the distinction. Uh, the uh, Karen Hogan did but say it's... there was mismanagement.
6: Mm-hmm. I do want to say though that the, the part of this has been referred to the RCMP already. Y- yes, and exactly. Kyle has has written to the RCMP to demand even further investigation. So that well, those that's allegations the of corruption are going to hover over the whole thing forever, right? Like
5: Yeah, but unless there's actually an investigation and charges, we we have to really be mindful about, you know, recognizing that there's just so far just an allegation of corruption, there hasn't actually been yes. corruption
0: and that Absolutely. that's an
5: important distinction to keep in mind.
0: Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. But it is also key to point out, you know, uh, Pierre Polyev is is trying to pursue it and see if there are uh, further investigation needed beyond just the attorney general. So I, I'm curious, you know, it, it's always hard to kind of um, take situations like this, because I think we all agree— the pandemic it was unprecedented how uh, how we had to adapt and how the government was trying to institute something like this during a period of such uncertainty was unlike anything they really had to deal with uh, prior to this but is the pandemic you know does that qualify as a, a blank slate okay well you know we had to do the best we can sorry you know it was we were we were all struggling at this point is that enough of a excuse or do do we still need to have more uh, kind of um, uh, like criticisms, and also a a tougher uh, level or bar to clear when it comes to government programs and things like this. Michelle, I'll start with you.
6: Oh I mean I I think everyone agrees like I said even the government themselves are acknowledging that that certain processes were not followed that should have been despite the, the urgency of the situation so there's absolutely I don't think there's any question at all and this is a good reminder that it's times of crisis when we need these processes to fall back on the most um so I think this does raise a whole lot of questions and for those who are who have the thought that these are government agencies that are generally a political i would remind that there is a minister responsible for procurement and all these processes and things like sole sourcing contracts fall directly within that purview so there absolutely is a political aspect to this and i do, i do think that it's it's fair to hold the government accountable for failures of process especially in a way during crisis times obviously there's ways to streamline these things and and, and there will be some degree of, of, of scramble and, and things that might fall through cracks in a, in a that very urgent situation like that. But this is really at times like this when processes can offer roadmaps that clearly were not even followed in this case.
0: And Joito, I'll give last word on this topic to you.
5: Well, I think... Can you excuse some of the mismanagement on the basis of the pandemic? I think it is charitable and even fair to say that, yes, the pandemic did play a big part in it. We know that it was a massive disruption. You can even argue it was an unplanned disruption, Uh, although that itself raises questions as to why we don't have (laughs) more robust uh, emergency planning for things like this, right? Like, um, I'm still brought back to something my husband said when the pandemic first when the first lockdowns came into effect, you know, March 2020, and I said, gosh, I totally didn't see this one coming. And my husband said, you know what, it's been about 100 years since the last one. So I think we're kind of due for another big pandemic. And I said, good God, what's wrong with you? (laughs) You know, uh, um, uh, as it turns out, he was right. Um, But, you know, I'm not saying that that kind of speculation should form the basis of public policy. But there is something to be said for the fact that I think we were perhaps a little less prepared for an event like this then perhaps we could have been. So there are lessons to be learned about how to handle a large-scale public health emergency um, and, and to recognize that maybe we were a little less prepared than we could have been. But I think the other part of this is the fact that uh, it is worth investigating why this was bungled quite as badly as it was. And I think the reason it was bungled was because of um, an ideological bend in government to really uh, lean on public pl- public-private partnerships. So. Imagine a scenario where you had uh, the app uh, developed in-house, and you hired people to, you know, to to um, to develop this app, and there was some accountability. Then I guess to the deputy minister who was in charge of procurement. What you have right now is this, you know, musical chairs or this revolving door of people. You're not really sure who to be, who to hold accountable. Do you hold the company accountable? Do you hold its subcontractors accountable? And I think there are some hard questions that need to be asked about this. Allergy that we seem to have about involving government. Um, because it would have been possible to not only build, you know, develop this on the cheap, uh, according to some of uh, the findings from the Auditor General, the daily per diem to develop this app was about $1,000. But had they done this internally, it would have cost us about $675. Mm-hmm. So that would have been a cute saving right out the gate. But then there would have also been clear lines of accountability and transparency. So I think apart from sort of pointing fingers at the Liberals and saying, gosh, you really messed this up. Uh, I think we also have to, as a society, ask some deeper questions about what exactly we're doing when we say that public-private partnerships um, are the way to go forward when we're dealing with projects of this nature. And maybe there is a role to play for, you know, maybe we do need to move away from this conveyor belt that we seem to have, where it's like, you know people in public office become lobbyists become you know involved with the private sector and then they go round and round in circles and as taxpayers we're the ones paying for this um this desire to keep involving the private sector when we may have in this instance been better served given that this was some developed in the public interest we might have been better served if the app had been developed in-house by the government
0: Very good. Okay, we will leave this conversation here for now but coming up after the break Juwita Gupta and Michelle McQuig will react to a recent incident with Air Canada. The airline was ordered to compensate a BC man after its online chatbot gave inaccurate information about flights. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the NOW News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuigg. Our next topic is all about Air Canada, who have been ordered to compensate a BC man after its online chatbot gave inaccurate information about flights. The Civil Civil Resolution Tribunal found Air Canada's online bot gave inaccurate information about the cost of a bereavement flight, And the bot said that the reduced rate could be collected retroactively up to 90 days after the flight. When Jake Moffat put in the application to receive the rebate, it was denied. Air Canada stated that they had no such policy and that the rates had to be claimed at the time of purchase. uh, Luckily for Moffat, he had taken a screenshot of the conversation with the bot that gave him the false information. Air Canada had to pay Moffat $650 in damages. So, Michelle, this was your uh, story for the week. Like, what's your reaction to the case?
6: Sure. Well, if I just want to, if I can provide just a tiny (laughs) bit of context that I think is going to inform some of how this discussion goes. Um, One of the big arguments that that Air Canada put forward in this is that they said this chatbot was its own legal entity, (laughs) and it was disclaiming all responsibility for any of its contents, even though it was a feature of its own website. So, I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that the tribunal's conclusion that no, actually, you are responsible for your own content, including your chatbot. I don't think any of us are going to take a whole lot of exception to that ruling. What I do find really interesting, though, is how we're already starting to see AI creeping into the courts. And this is the kind of case I think we're going to see increasingly often. This does not establish precedent. It's a tribunal ruling. It was for pretty small potatoes in terms of money. It was like 650 bucks. You know, like I'll take it, but we're not mm-hmm. talking you know, budgetary, little game-changing stuff here. But these are the sorts of conflicts we're going to be seeing more and more often. I was very interested to see the re- the wholesale rejection of Air Canada's position on this. And it comes at a time when companies, governments, you name it, are trying to figure out how to handle AI. Yeah. <laughs> it's such an emerging world, and into that world drops this case that I found quite interesting and probably relatable for a lot of us who've had our our frustrations with chatbots over the years.
0: Absolutely. Joita, what was your reaction to, to the case and the ruling?
5: Well I think my reaction is twofold. I agree with Michelle. I think part of the, the what makes this story interesting is the novelty of uh, artificial intelligence and the fact that it is uh, one of those rapidly expanding technological fields and our laws and even our thinking have, frankly hasn't really caught up with it. It's a lot like the so, like social media maybe 10 15 years ago where we really didn't yeah. have we didn't really have any sort of regulatory framework for social media and so you had you know, the police basically going around and skulking on people's social media profiles and there was no checks and balances. It was a bit of a Wild West. And now that's all, you know, changing. And I suspect as artificial intelligence becomes even more enmeshed, we're going to have very deep discussions in the next five to 10 years about what kind of a regulatory and legal landscape is going to follow from that. Um, That's, with all of that said, I think we have to acknowledge the novelty of the thing. But when it comes down to it, in one sense, this is the this is, you know, business as usual, where you've got this large corporation trying to uh, basically wash their hands off of an embarrassing situation or not to take responsibility for it. Uh, but it's really, in essence, no different from a scenario where you had a customer service representative or maybe a, a worker on a retail floor um, maybe mistakenly provide a customer with information that contradicts company policy. Well, if that comes to light, it doesn't matter what the person on the floor told you or what the CSR on the phone told you. Um you know if they if the person was in the was in the wrong it doesn't uh it's not the it's not the customer's fault right like at the end of the day mm-hmm. the company has to uh, be responsible for what the customer service representative is saying, what an employee is saying, <clears throat> um, and what its chatbot chatbot is saying. Uh, the other part of the story that was really interesting for me was um, Air Canada turning around and saying, but you know, if you went and looked on our website, it actually does make it clear uh, that bereavement <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> leave is, you know, it, you can only get yeah, the bereavement exactly. rate at, at the time of booking. Mm-hmm. And then they turn around and say, but hang on, that's not the that's not the end user's problem. It's not up to the customer to decide which part of your website to trust. So, Mm-hmm. I think that that was also really interesting. Uh, it, it's actually a very strong ruling in favor of uh consumer protection. So I yes. think it's going to be very interesting yes. to see um you know it's not precedent setting but it is also sort of indicating that um we don't have a lot of uh of regulation when it comes to artificial intelligence but in essence we're still dealing with a david and goliath kind of situation and those stories are always fun to talk
0: about well and and the thing is too and as i pointed out like the the one thing that really made the difference was the fact he had screenshots of the conversation if he didn't mm-hmm. then Eric yeah. Hanna would have just said oh well no you clearly you know our chatbots have this information this is how they do it They they're they're going to give you accurate information it was only that you had clear proof of of the uh the wrong information being presented to the customer that he, they actually had a a fighting chance against Air Canada. I, I like it fascinates me that of all the positions that you could take that Air Canada's like, yeah, no, our our uh, features of our website and our own like information dispensing chatbots, they're not actually associated with. They're their own thing. Like, I. And you you made a great point, uh, Juita. It's like it's the same idea of having like a customer service rep in a store. It would be ridiculous to be like, oh, I went uh, and talked to a salesperson at your store. Well, they don't actually work for us. They're their own person. They just <laughs> happen to be there yeah, selling yeah. our products and sharing information. But they're not with us. Even don't don't look at the shirt they're wearing. You know, yeah. M- Michelle, like dive a bit deeper into this. Like this is just bizarre, right? To try to make that argument.
6: It, I mean, I, it certainly struck me as as that way, but, but but at the same time, we, we live in a world where corporations are considered a legal entity. So uh, th- there's lots of wiggle room in these definitions. There always has been. Uh, Air Canada, of course, does have a pretty strong track record of, of trying to protect its own interests in these sorts of cases when they arise. Um, but it definitely did strike me as a novel argument, just especially in light of the tech itself, uh, as we see more and more generative AI entering our society and our lives. Um, trying to treat the chatbot differently than it would a customer service rep, because I don't think Air Canada would have had the, the the nerve, shall we say, to, to forward that argument if the conversation in question had taken place with a human. Um, But the fact that they did try to roll this one was interesting because I'm sure that there will be cases that do go to court, perhaps with even bigger corporations that might try something similar. And in a world where we don't have any kind of guardrails on this, um, that, it's a bit nerve-wracking, I think, for, for many of us.
0: Yeah, and, and this seems like it—I I know you both have mentioned this is not precedent-setting, but this feels like this is the first hint of, <laughs> okay, where those guardrails might come into play. So, Joita, like, talk a bit more about in terms of, like, how we we should try to look at guardrails, like, what are companies kind of really doing? What are governments and courts starting to view as—where Where are the lines when it comes to AI and the use of things like chatbots?
5: Uh it's hard to say I mean I'm not um I'm not a, a technological expert so I don't exactly know where Drills would be, but I think a good place to start would be to acknowledge that if you have a chatbot on your website, then it is in fact a part of your website, and you are accountable for the information that it dispenses. That might be a really good place to start. Uh, but also, you know, finding ways to verify the information. That I think there should be some responsibility on on the uh, entity or the company or the corporation that is making use of a chatbot to uh, do some quality control. Like you know, if you pick up the phone and you sort of talk to a customer service rep, you'll get that little message that. Says this call may be recorded for quality control purposes. And I think that there will be some expectations that if companies are going to increasingly rely on our AI uh, as an alternative to actually hiring real people to do customer service work, mm-hmm. then there is um, a corresponding responsibility that companies have to ensure that the information given out by artificial <laughs> intelligence uh, and is actually accurate so whether that means going in and then conducting tests whether that means doing uh, routine quality control I think those are going to be some of the basic things but one of the things that I really like of course that
6: they might do a disclaimer like we're not we Mm. can't be held responsible for any information provided this way like that's another approach that I could see taking hold and that yeah
5: of course they're going to do a disclaimer but at the same time yes yes I can see that I can see that too but I think again I mean if they're not going to be if they're not going to take responsibility for the information and it's just going to cause all kinds of confusion. Um, maybe they're not ready to adopt the technology because it's just going to end up with <laughs> we're just going to end up end up with more of these cases where people are going to say, but you know your chat box said one thing, but apparently it's not your official company policy. So I think it's very hard to say with any degree of certainty what the guardrails will be uh, because we're, it's all so new. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they convene some kind of a a roundtable where they bring in industry experts and people from governments and and people with like a background in in tech and uh, and and uh, you know. And ethics and things of like that to try and actually hammer out what these guidelines will look like. It's beyond my pay grade to be honest with you, but I've taken my best shot at <laughs> it. So. Uh,
0: Joita, first off, I, I want to commend you for uh, for your I- imitation of the uh, uh, the the like recurring message on on recording the conversation because that yeah. was like spot on. Like I, I thought it was on hold for a second while you were talking. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> dang okay okay tarita's like she's heard a few of those in her time i i also think too like because uh, earlier in the week we had marco follow on and he was playing some uh ai generated like audio um uh kind of sound clips of of narration and people and we failed uh, those who were participating in that uh a fun game which you can find out on uh ami uh, plus on or on the podcast but it was fascinating because you couldn't always identify who was human who wasn't like the lines become more and more blurred right now mm-hmm. obviously you know there's clear identifiable things where it's like oh this is a chatbot. you know hello how may i assist you you know just blocks of of information online but if you're picking up the phone there may not even be that guaranteed that the person on the other end of the line answering your call may in fact be human sooner rather than later michelle what do you make of the ideas around these like these guardrails, like how th- this technology is rapidly expanding so quickly and how eager te- uh, different uh, companies are are to adopt it.
6: Oh, I mean, the appetite is huge. The, the, all the, the the various API plugins for ChatGPT companies leapt on those the, the exact second they became available. I think the appetite is very much there, but also so is the, the need for these guardrails. And you do, in, in fairness, to, to most institutions – a lot of them are scrambling to put them in place and began and began doing so within months of chat GPT, really sort of putting AI on the map in the mainstream way. Um, but, and I ha- I have to say though, I'm with Joita, this is not my area of expertise by okay. any means. There are literally entire firms of people who who can handle this, these sorts of questions much more intelligently than I have. I haven't even taken the time to really dive deeply into the guidelines released, released in places like the EU. So there are pla- there are some, corners of the world and some companies that have more robust frameworks than others, but I'm not familiar with how those look. And I certainly don't feel qualified to weigh in on whether they're equal to the task at hand.
0: Okay. Then let's, let's end the conversation on this. Let's talk about our personal experience. So take, take the, the reporter journalist hats off, talk about the personal experience. Dorita, what is your personal experience with chatbots, bots? And do, does this kind of ruling and how this situation play out, raise concerns of engaging with them in the future or or how you would engage with them in the future?
5: Well, I think it's unavoidable. Um, like I said, I think many companies are looking to the bottom line and more and more because it's, um, you don't have to pay a chat bot. Uh, I think we are, that is the future of customer service. Um, and we're seeing, I think it's unavoidable uh, to have to engage with them and chat bots are, you know, becoming ever-present, whether it's in the classroom or in customer service or, you know, in in other facets of life. Um, I don't have too many complaints and I don't have too many um good experiences it's kind of just there for me um but i also recognize that at this stage if i did get information from a chatbot my instinct would be to try and double check it just to be on the safe side but that's mm-hmm. just my skepticism talking uh but i recognize that many people would not so i think the the need for some kind of 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 you know the need for some kind of uh, regulatory framework and also the need for for companies to take Account to, to take some note of the chatbot and to take note of what information is being dispensed by the chatbot. I think those things become very important. Uh, but for myself, you know, I'm kind of reconciled to the fact that they're they're here to stay and um, will increasingly be the way that we get information because companies don't want to have to pay actual people. I mean, we saw that they already started to, you know. Uh, many years ago, they started the practice of farming our customer service work overseas where they could get labor for cheap. And now this is sort of the next yeah. the next stage in that. So I don't see them
6: going away.
0: Michelle, last word on this topic goes to you.
6: Yeah, I, I'm with Joita. I don't see them going away. And I don't love that because I am not a fan. I, I actually don't even love the chat functions in, in, in most, even when you're talking to a person. I, I, I find those frustrating at times when dealing with a company or trying to get answers from a complex website. Um Chatbots, I, I tend to try to avoid, but I think Joita is totally right. That will not be an option forever. Um, I think you're right on, Joita, to identify the the next wave of of customer service outsourcing, uh, adding in this direction. Uh, so, yeah, you know, in this case, I think will make me a little more diligent about perhaps trying to verify info when possible. But at the same time, you're probably only using this chatbot in the first place because you can't find the info yourself.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Good times
6: for us all. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, Okay. Thank you both. We'll leave the conversation there for now. Coming up after the break, Michelle McQuigg and Jwita consider recent comments made by Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo, who says the federal government is no longer investing in new road developments. You're watching the Now News Panel on AMI TV. Welcome back to the NOW News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smyth and I'm joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We have one more topic to discuss today. Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo made headlines this week by saying the federal government would no longer invest in new road developments. He said that Canada can achieve its social, economic and human development goals with the current road network by reporters and members of the opposition later in the week, he clarified that he referenced that the federal government would no longer fund or support large road developments. The response to the comments ranged from calling the move outrageous to Gabo being referred to as a real piece of work. Now, there are several planned and proposed road developments in and around the country. The future of those projects are now on uneven ground following these comments. So, Michelle McCraig, we'll start with you on this one. He did clarify, you know, his position. He 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 did follow up when he was asked by reporters, by the opposition and press, that he he should have chosen his words maybe a bit more carefully. But there have been a lot of questions raised based on his past. He uh, was a former activist, a, a climate, uh, an environmental activist. Do these. Comment, did these comments hint at something maybe a bit more in terms of personal feeling, or was this truly just you know uh, he made a and then made a correction?
6: I, I'm 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 reluctant to speculate on a person's intentions, uh, but I do find the issue itself really interesting. I want to note a couple of things, and that a lot of the reaction uh, against Stephen Gilbo in general and this particular proposal came from historic enemies. So we're seeing this from from premiers who are generally opposed to Gilbo's agenda, who oppose the carbon price, who uh, have historically pushed back on these sorts of things. Um, so we're not necessarily seeing a lot of attacks on Stephen Gilbo from from unexpected quarters. Uh, that said, though, these comments are—it's hard to get a sense of how serious he is because we haven't actually heard a lot of backup from the government on where things stand on these projects— um, we are facing a housing crisis, as we all know, we all know that the infrastructure around big cities uh, cannot necessarily support the number of people that we have even now, never mind those who may come once the housing is built. Uh, we have First Nations who are increasingly concerned about the state of their ice roads in the winter, and that falls directly within federal purview. Uh, there are lots of projects, infrastructure and you know, rail and, and bridge projects, for instance, on the go at the moment um and there clearly is a need for that so it, the comments for, about the 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 current feasibility of the network kind of jumped out at me and i'm a little surprised not to see more criticism marshaled along those lines rather than sort of historic people who don't, who don't, who have a different stance on the environment than this minister does
0: and juita what did you make of the comments the reaction and kind of where this posi- this potential position could could lead the government
5: well, I mean, we don't know too much about the policy at the moment, but it sounds like the comments made by Stephen Gilbrow might have been a little more, uh, maybe not as, maybe, they, well, he concedes they weren't as well thought out as they could have been, uh, but maybe they're a little bit more extreme sounding than the actual policy, um, I mm-hmm. think. We will find that when the we know the details, it in in all probability uh will be a little more nuanced than that. Um, there are, as Michelle very pointed out very astutely, um, some very complicated conversations about the road networks um in Canada that need to be had. Uh, and yet there are equally complicated conversations about the environment and climate and uh, the dependence on um vehicles that also need to be had. So it is yes, an interesting topic yes. to talk about. And I think what is interesting for me in the story is in the lead up uh to the election. Again, you know, opposition looking for any and every opportunity, uh, and you have to to uh criticize uh the track record of the government. You also have all the traditional sort of opponents of climate policy, as Michelle pointed out, only to willing only quite willing to jump on the bandwagon here as well. Uh, So you do have Stephen Gilbert, who sounds a little bit more like an activist and less like a cabinet minister. And I think that, if anything, is the only failing that he could be accused of, which is you're not really thinking through uh, the repercussions of saying things Without fully considering the ramifications, mm-hmm. like you know, you're not just an activist anymore. You have you you have this past of you know, I don't know, climbing the CN Tower and and having other climate related political action, but that was then, and this is now. And when you're a government, when you're speaking for the government of the day, you have to maybe be a little more nuanced in your thinking. And I think that's the extent of criticism that you can actually level against him. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, if he continues to retain. Uh, the environment portfolio moving forward because yes he has this track record on the environment but he's also become something of a lightning rod and that's something that the Liberals will have oh to yeah with
6: moving forward. yeah but it, people who but people who back climate policy are very happy with with his performance more than than environment ministers passed under this government so it, yeah it, it is going to be a really difficult political question and and I it's worth noting that that portfolio did figure into this announcement, too. He did say that rather than investing in road projects, the government, he'd like to see the government investing more in public transit. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, as Joita raised earlier, uh, is, is another very, very critical piece of this, because the fact is that his mandate is to address climate change. And yeah. this is one way to do that.
0: And I, I wanted to kind of have a bit of fun and pose this question because I, I think it's, you know, it's it's one worth worth asking and worth considering. Is it possible that we we could just not build any new roads or any road structure? Like this isn't gonna happen, right? Like we're still gonna be no. developing roads and connections, right? Uh, Joita, we're, we're not stopping the development of new road networks.
5: No. I, I think if you look at any election in Canada, anywhere, whether it's local and uh, municipal elections or, you know, federal elections, often a big piece of any campaign, a big part of anyone's platform is, you know, getting this road built
0: mm-hmm. or getting this yes.
5: road expanded, you know, we'll have a quadrillion different lanes, you know? Um, and unfortunately the way things have broken, have, have come down and the, 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 our sort of legacy in Canada is that it is a very heavily dependent on roads and roadways. And so, Uh, It's a very big part of our political life to have debates and discussions about building roads. And it is inconceivable at this stage to to, to think about a scenario where we don't have any new roads built. With that said, I think there is a a nugget of it it is a really bold idea. Mm -hmm. I don't. In theory, it's a really bold idea. I think in practice, it's a little bit harder to pull off because you've got parts of uh, Canada that are still very remote, especially indigenous communities where uh, you don't have those transit uh, connections. and you know, getting transit built is a whole other
6: disaster. (laughs) It can
5: be multi-years, lots of wrangling, lots of squabbling. Uh, So I don't see roadways going away, but I think it is an interesting conversation to talk about how we actually expand um, our rail network and other forms of, uh, you know, you can't not build roads and also not have other forms of transportation available. So if you want people to use roadways and vehicles less, so you feel Mm -hmm. that we have enough, then the real... Really interesting question for me to ask is, and what, well, what, what next, or what is the alternative? We we know that there's um there are population centers that uh, need uh, greater public transit and access to you know quality public transit, but there's also parts of Canada where you don't have as much population, but they are remote and far flung, um, and often the only way to get to a community is is a road, and it may not even be feasible to have a you know a train, for example, so. These are complicated questions, I think. um, but from a political standpoint, it's very hard to envision a campaign where you don't have the inevitable discussion about roads or highways
0: and Michelle, last word is going to go to you like we're we're having roads, still, even if we want to invest in and in, in, even if we want to invest in public transit, I mean, it it takes like a fraction of the time to build a road network than it would to develop a whole new uh, transit, public transit alternative transportation network, right?
6: I mean, I I don't I can't weigh in on that because I'm not completely sure, but I, I certainly know that it, it's the gov- the federal government is not the only person or the only entity that can fund road development. <laughs> in response to this announcement, Doug Ford put out a tweet um, that took a bit of a shot at Gilboa, but also said, you know, he's not interested in building roads. I am, and I will do so with or without federal money. And and that's is something that the Ontario government has made a lot of investment in is road networks. There's several highway projects on the go. Um, some of them are kind of controversial but nevertheless they are proceeding and yeah it, it, the federal government is not the only one who can order road networks mm. built of course we're still going to have roads like provinces yeah. uh, jo- as just said they're crucial parts of political campaigns they're i don't know to what degree private enterprise can be involved of course we're not going to stop building roads yeah of well, <laughs>
0: course we don't even we don't even system. know what this
6: federal policy will look like
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a fair point. That's a very fair point. Thank you both so much. I would love to keep talking, but we are out of time. Jawita, thank you. Have yourself a wonderful day.
6: Thank you very much.
0: Michelle, thank you. Have yourself a wonderful day.
6: Same to you. Take care, everybody.
0: Yeah, that was Joita Gupta, who is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio, and Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, we have the regional news update, and Brock Richardson stops by for Sports Chat. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, coming to you on AMI-tv and streaming and audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. It is Friday, February 16th, 2024. Coming up on the second hour of the show, have you followed AMI on TikTok yet? If you haven't, Greg David is going to stop by and describe what you're missing. He's our communications specialist, by the way. And Jennifer Lopez has a new album out today, so Laura Bain will give you the details in the entertainment report. But before we get to any of that, it's time for the regional news update. We begin in the prairies where Alberta will have to wait until the fall to find out how much the federal government is willing to give the province to start its own pension plan. Lisa Laporte has the details.
1: Finance Minister Nate Horner says they've been told Canada's chief actuary plans to strike a panel this spring to explore how much Alberta should get. He says an expected final calculation is supposed to be delivered in the fall. Premier Danielle Smith's government is urging Albertans to consider a provincially run pension plan, saying the province's strong financial position and young workforce would deliver better benefits than staying with the CPP. The province is relying on a report that says its 53% of the entire CPP a calculation critics have called wildly overblown Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press
0: And now over to Ontario where the London police force is facing scrutiny for attending a SWAT challenge event held in Dubai The force worked with Russian special forces at the event John Kendi has more
2: The London Police Services Board has launched a review of the approval process for the force's participation in the UAE SWAT challenge in late January and early February. The London, Ontario Police Service was the only Canadian force to participate. Two U.S. police forces also sent delegations. Arl Braun, a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto, said the London force's participation in the event damages Canada's image and there is no reasonable justification for attending. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press.
0: And that's it for the regional news update. It's now time for a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, you wanted to kind of follow up naturally, segue from our conversation yesterday into today. I'm sliding the rock your way. What did you want to talk about?
7: Yes, so we talked about uh, Jennifer Jones uh, retiring at the end of the Scotties uh, yesterday, and so today I thought I'd give you my own little uh, preview for this event. There are a whole bunch of teams uh, that are going to be representing from all provinces, and it's going to be a real great event. Alex, I'll tell you that... I would say to you that Carrie Anderson, Team Canada, she's going for her sixth uh, straight title of the Scotties, which is really unbelievable. And a lot of people will sit and say, why is she so successful? Well, the answer to that question is because her team has stayed together for two quadrennials, for the better part of two quadrennials. And because of that, they've just been able to gel and do really good things. And I think they're going to be the favorite to win. I would also put in the favorite list, uh, Rachel Holman from team Ontario. She has not won since uh, 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. Uh, So I'm looking for her to have a really good tournament as well. I would say Krista McCarble from Northern Ontario will be another team you should look out for. And my real dark horse, for this tournament will be Laurie St. George from uh, Quebec. She, This is her third Scotties that she's coming off of. And she's really, really young. When she came, she was really, really young. And now she's getting the the whole... I'm getting the feel for the Scotties. So I expect her to have a really good event. The unique thing about this event, Alex, is that it's divided into two pools of, uh, of eight. And so you play lots of games. And then top four from each pool will cross over to the other pool. You bring your record with you, and then you play the four teams that you have not played from the other pool. And then you make up from the final eight, you make up the top four, and we play in the playoffs. So this is going to be a great, great event that you can catch on TSN beginning tonight. It's in Calgary, uh, Alberta, and it will go all the way through to next weekend. So great event coming up. I got a chance a couple of years ago to go to the Briar, which is the men's event, and it's a really Really good event to go to, Curling Canada does a wonderful job in putting together these national championships.
0: Well, and, and the thing, too, is just the quality of competition within Canada when it comes to curling. It is so impressive because you essentially get some of the best teams in the world that are competing against each other, and they may not even be, you know, the representative team for te- uh, for Canada, but the quality of the competition, the the high-level stakes that each of these teams have to put up and, and and fight against is always so fascinating. I, I'm a very casual curling fan, if that, Brock, but I always know that when the Tournaments of Hearts comes around, it's like, this is going to be some of the best curling you're going to see all year round.
7: I would even argue, and I mean absolutely zero disrespect to the people around the world that play curling. I would argue that this is the toughest national championship out of the world i think to your point exactly there are four five six seven teams that i couldn't i could name here in canada from different provinces that could win this event if you come out of this event and you're winning you are really poised to take on the world and that's why you see so often team canada do so very well because they've already been through the grind of of doing this and i think another thing that curling canada does is they put it close enough to the, the the world championships where there's only about a two week difference between uh, when you finish to when your world championship is so you're really primed to do this and some people will say ah yeah but you burn the athlete out no 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 you want to go on your high and i think they do a really really good job and these teams are so skilled and so talented that they know when they need to take their rest time and to make sure that they're 100% for not only the scotties but the world championships themselves
0: And another, so that is coming up this weekend, so that's in the immediate future. But another story caught your attention, Brock, about looking further down the line, and it has to do with baseball.
7: Yeah, uh, this one was a bit weird to me. It came through uh, my group that I have for uh, the neutral zone, and somebody posted it in our group. And and the first thing I said when they said Rob Manfred was retiring in four years, the uh, commissioner, I said, it's a good thing they gave us advance notice of four years. I, I don't know why the announcement came out. I, I recognize that when this news thing happens, you're going to report on it, but it's four years down the line. He's not retiring until uh, uh, four years from now, so it's weird, but sure, I guess we can look into the future and say who's going to be next. Alex, what I'd like to see for baseball is, is somebody a bit younger that comes in and maybe injects that. Uh, fresher blood into the sport i'd like to see a younger commissioner come and take the game sort of by the horns and build on what rob manfred's done because i think rob manfred's done a pretty pretty good job in sort of uh mixing in some of the new generation of baseball fans versus the old i think for a long time they stuck into oh this is an old man's game and now with the rule changes they've they've done a good job and i'd like someone to piggyback on what rob manfred's done but i'd like it to be someone younger to sort of appeal to that younger audience in addition to not forgetting about the people that have loved baseball for decades and decades
0: yeah exactly well and it's such a great point that you know he has been kind of a driving change for for the sport for the league making it a shorter more contained game you're not getting as many like games that go three, four hours long because you you added the pitch clock, you added, uh, you know, these other rules for staying in the batter's box, things like that, putting those clocks on the on the game to make it faster, make it a better product overall to not only be there in person, but also to watch at home, I think are huge uh, kind of feathers in his cap. I, I think the role of commissioner is such an unusual one that it, it can be a real challenge trying to identify what, you need from a a successor like how you really want to impact the game and and not only that but when you're the commissioner you're working with all these team owners you're, you're you re- essentially represent them in the sport so you need them to be able to buy in on whoever's going to take the reins as commissioner they may or may not like the idea of going younger brock who knows time will tell there's four years still there's going to be plenty of conversations pl- plenty of names will come up between now and then of who should be the next commissioner. But until then, let's let's uh, uh, say goodbye for the week. Have yourself a wonderful weekend, and you'll be back on Tuesday chatting with Dave. Yes, thank you so much, and have a great long weekend, everybody out there, and you as well, Alex. Thank you very much, Brock. That is Brock Richardson at the Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, we got the weather story of the day with John Lepke and... Uh, Laura Bain will stop by to talk about Jennifer Lopez and her new album dropping. She has all the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming and audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. It's now time to enjoy the weather story of the day with John Lepke. John, you have snow on your mind today.
4: Yeah, and it's not even in Saskatchewan where I am. But just because Monday may be a holiday across much of the country doesn't mean that Mother Nature has decided to sit back and relax as we go into the weekend. According to the Weather Network, this weekend should see significant amounts of both wind and snow hit southern Ontario, the high area being in southern Bruce County and the Owen Sound area, which is currently under a snow squall warning while anticipating winds up to 70 kilometres an hour. Elsewhere in Canada... Fort Severn, Ontario is under an extreme cold warning, with temps dropping as low as minus 45 with wind chill. Further to the east, areas of Newfoundland and Labrador are under winter storm warnings or blowing snow advisories. Hopedale in the area is experiencing snow and wind that reduces visibility, the maximum wind there being in the 80 kilometer an hour range. Meanwhile, the in the McCovic area looks to be getting between 25 to 60 centimeters of snow across the weekend and the same is expected in the black tickle area. Plus, because our weather in this country is anything but predictable, areas of interior British Columbia are under air quality advisories due to the levels of dust in the area. Those at additional risk due to air quality, including those with COVID-19, those with other respiratory infections, as well as people with asthma, are encouraged to stay indoors if they are experiencing symptoms.
0: John, thank you so much for uh, bringing the weather story forward. Don't go anywhere because after the break, we'll be chatting again for the round table. But I will bid adieu to you for now. And so now we will go in one minute to Laura Bain, who has the entertainment story of the day. But first, Bose has released a new type of earbud that lets users hear more of the world around them. Here's reporter Mike Debusky with Tech Trends. From ABC News Tech Trends, many modern earbuds offer a transparency mode that lets in a little bit of outside noise so that you remain aware of your surroundings. But it doesn't always sound as natural as if your ear was just widely open. Wired contributor Ryan Winita says Bose's new ultra-open earbuds aim to get around that by leaving much of your ear open. So they have a barrel on one end, and then it's all connected with a little silicone curl. And then on the other end is uh, what I've described as sort of a serpentine housing for the speakers themselves, and then that fires into your ear. As for sound, don't expect the same quality as buds that seal to your ears. They're not going to have the bass response, and they're not going to have the
4: intimacy, but when you compare them to other open earbuds, these are among the best, if not the best I've heard. But you're going to pay for it. When you're paying $300, most people probably want that as their everything earbud, and I think that's very difficult for
0: open earbuds to become. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubosky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. It's now time for the Entertainment Report with Laura Bain. Laura, you want to talk about Jennifer Lopez because she has some new music dropping today.
3: That's right. She has her first new album out in a decade today, and it's called This Is Me dot 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 now. And in addition to that album, she's also released an Amazon original called This Is Me Now, A Love Story. Apparently, the Amazon original movie showcases her journey to love through her own eyes. I did cue it up this morning and just watched the first minute or two. It doesn't appear to have any audio description. So thumbs down just on that aspect of it. But for those who kind of aren't in the know, the title This Is Me Now is a throwback to her 2002 album this is me then uh, folks will remember perhaps some hits from that album like Jenny from the block hard to hard to miss that back in mm-hmm. 2002 but both rela- uh, both albums explore her relationship with Ben Affleck which was very much on in 2002 and then off but is now back on so I brought a clip from the lead single of this new album it's called can't get enough let's give that a little listen
0: Okay, okay. You know, it's got got a groovy beat, something you can dance to. I'm not mad at this so far.
3: <laughs> okay, you're not mad at it. Now, are you a J Lo fan, Alex? Would you say?
0: I I can't say I would be a J Lo fan. I I typically pop has never been my genre of music. I respect it. I respect the uh, ability to not only be a singer, uh, a fabulous singer, fabulous dancer, and an actress as well. Like having to to balance all those things and be successful at all of them, like. You know, I I'm a fan of what she is able to do. Just maybe not a fan of the uh, any specific things in general. What about you, though, Laura?
3: Yeah, you know, I'm sort of in the same. I've never been a huge fan, but I definitely appreciate her talent and appreciate what she does. I gave this album sort of a quick initial listen this morning, and I think fans are going to be really happy. Um, Personally, there's an earnestness to it that I really like. So it's got tracks on it like Dear Ben Part 2 and This Time Around. Maybe a tell-all of their relationship isn't the right way to put it, but there's definitely like no cloak and dagger about what the album is like. And I sort of... I like that vulnerability. Uh, I think there's a hopeless romantic vibe to it. Uh, I'm I'm happy for Benifer, but I, I think this is going to go up there with like top ten worst albums, maybe to listen to if you've just been dumped because it does have that really positive about love kind of vibe to it.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, like that's kind of the thing. It's you're not going to be listening to like you know upbeat uh, love or pop songs if if your uh, your relationship is on the rocks or you're you're dealing with a breakup. No, but. I find it kind of endearing, you know, you know where she is, uh, like where she stands, you know what she's feeling. She's writing about, you know, the the relationship, the joy that she's feeling, the love that she has. And, you know, you can appreciate that someone wearing their heart on their sleeves and, and sharing their expression with the world. So, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of that.
3: Oh, absolutely. Now, I know I've got to get out of here, but I just want to let people know that she's also announced a This Is Me Now tour, which will have two stops in Canada, Toronto on August 2nd and Montreal on August 6th. And pre-sale for those tickets happens on Tuesday.
0: And uh, Laura, one more thing. I I want to kind of uh, explore this question with you just uh, uh, briefly, but like in terms of when an artist is really kind of expressing a... Like, how do you feel when they really dive into a specific kind of emotion or feeling for the, the course of an entire album? Like, this one's really about love and relationship. Like, are you the type of person like, oh, I want to explore this entire album. I want to give it a, a thorough listen. Or it's like, I'm going to pick and choose a song or two that I can take away and listen to, you know, for the next little while. Or are you going to listen to it cover to cover?
3: Yeah, interesting question and I think you could probably even go so far as to call this a concept album. I don't know maybe I'm off on that but I you know listening to it this morning I think maybe you could. I like it. And I think uh, people don't usually listen to music that way anymore, like listen to a whole album through. But I appreciate when an artist has crafted something that way. Now, that being said, I do think this has very much that pop by vibe, or you can listen to it track by track. But I, I like music that is not superficial. And and I wouldn't, even though this is pop, I wouldn't call it superficial. As I say, I think there is really a vulnerability in this album. And it has very much that J-Lo sound from 20 years ago, but there's sort of subtle ways in which you can tell, you know, the passage of time and the age that has come into it.
0: And I guess the the other thing is, too, if it's uh, these albums are dropping 10 years apart, I guess we have to then wait 10 more years for an, another uh, album, album to come out about uh, how the relationship is going with her and Ben.
3: Well, fortunately, Alex, or, or unfortunately, I'm sure that the tabloids will keep us informed <laughs> about everything that is happening with
0: Benifer. That is very true. Thank you so much, Laura. Have yourself a wonderful weekend.
3: Yeah, thanks, Alex. You as well.
0: Okay, that is Laura Bain with the entertainment report. We wanna hear from you at home as well, because today I want to find out what is the most overrated ice cream flavor. I said it was chocolate. John Lefke said it was vanilla. Cookie dough is also on the list. And if you wanna go off the board, you can choose other. Just be sure to leave a comment and let us know which one it is the poll is available at accessible media inc on facebook at accessible media on x you can also send an email feedback at ami.ca if you want to give an even longer deep dive into ice cream and flavors or something else with the show be sure to send an email or give us a ring and you can do so at one eight six six five zero nine forty five forty five. 509 4545 Coming up after the break, John Lepke will stop by. He has a roundtable topic all about volunteer service people and firefighters. It's going to spur a really fascinating conversation on the roundtable. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave, who will return on Tuesday. Uh, before we welcome in Nisreen abdel to join in on the roundtable, let's say hello again to John Lepke. John, hello again. So you hello. have a, you want to discuss volunteer firefighters, and you had a story that really caught your attention.
4: Absolutely. So in many parts of the country, particularly in rural areas, if you're calling a firefighter, you're often calling a volunteer. However, this setup can also extend to cities with a widespread population. On Thursday, as reported by Arthur White-Cremie at CBC, a proposal was supported at Ottawa City Council that would see 500 volunteer firefighters reclassified as part-time employees. The motion passed at the committee level and will now go to the full council for a vote next week. This change would see firefighters become eligible for vacation and pension benefits. One of the councilors involved in the proposal is also keen to join the fire volunteer firefighting force if the city's integrity commissioner allows it. So to start off with, Nazreen, what do you think of this possible change?
8: It's pretty remarkable that there were so many people uh over 500 volunteers just kind of going in and doing their job knowing that they're not getting paid enough or um they're they have no benefits so it just just the thought of that was remarkable just to hear um this change needs to happen it's uh if it if this change doesn't happen it's like saying their job isn't important enough in my head, that's just, that's just how I put it. So this change needs to happen. It would be great that this would happen. I think a lot of people would benefit from this.
0: Well, absolutely. And and the thing too, it's like, this is, when it comes to emergency services, I've always been of the mind, there should never be any type of volunteer position. Like, we, this is one right. of the uh, most important kind of aspects of our society. We should be uh, supporting and funding, you know, all emergency services, because they are so vital that when there are times of crisis, when there are times of need, that these are the people you're relying on. And if they're volunteers and they're really not getting that support, they're doing it, uh, they're sacrificing so much, let alone within the risk and dangers of, of the the role itself. But just financially, the, there's all those types of uh, questions I've raised. So, Absolutely, this should be a change. This should be instituted nationwide. I I think the idea or concept of volunteer firefighters in general is one that never quite sat right with me. I I never quite understood why we had that in the first place, because any community, any uh, municipality should have kind of a support structure in place to make sure that, yeah, your basic services and emergency services are taken care of and supported. John, what Mm -hmm. do you think on this move?
4: Yeah, I, I think that this is a, a move. I must say, when and this came across my across my uh, desk, which it, it caught my eye partially because the journalist who, who wrote the story uh, previous to his gig at, at CBC in Ottawa worked in Saskatchewan. But uh, along with that, um, you know, we have a long tradition here in in Saskatchewan of volunteer firefighters, and part of the reason for that is to reduce those. Um, response times because if you have if you keep them in people paid in larger centers, we see this with the RCMP, even with rural detachments, those um, those response times become longer and longer. But that is to say that I, I'm in agreement that particularly being able to get people pensions and benefits and, and vacation, and that being something that they can offer. It was also in the story, I didn't put it in my script this morning, but that uh, a large portion of those volunteer firefighters in Ottawa hold regular city jobs as well as um, this extra commitment to their community.
0: And then do you think if, you know, if this style of uh, kind of uh, volunteer uh, kind of model is in place, you know, what what kind of, um, I guess, like, benefits or support would you want to see them uh kind of then start to receive john
4: yeah i mean i think it's going to vary municipality to municipality as per usual with this sort of thing but um you know I mean, I am a disabled reporter. I I would like to see some pretty stringent uh, disability supports, particularly for firefighters. Um, And we see the high risk that firefighters take on on the other side of the country in in British Columbia with firefighting. So I would like to see possibly some additional funding for people to take you know time away from other jobs or to acknowledge that level of risk, like we have hazard pay in some of our other emergency professions.
0: Well, and Nisreen, like to me, this always seems like you know, th- this should be a no brainer, like, there, this should be, uh, mm-hmm. we-, we should have the funding all around, like, but I-, I also appreciate the point, John, that you had made where you said, like, you know, a lot of the times this is to reduce. Uh, response times, a lot of these, uh, volunteers are already in the, the city, uh, in other positions, like in term, what would you also like to see done this, Rain, when it comes to the volunteer firefighter program or, or the, the kind of, um, emergency call-up situations like this?
8: Well, you brought this up. Uh, this should be a no-brainer. And I think there should be benefits. There should be vacation. There should be disability benefits as well as uh, as what John pointed out as well. Um, There are a lot of benefits to making this change. Why? Because if there isn't a change, I feel like it's very discouraging. Uh, People aren't motivated enough to even continue this volunteer, especially that they have other jobs to um, continue on, right? So... uh, I don't think there should be a question about it. You're you're relying on these people. These people are on demand. You're you 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 need these people and and I think that's pretty important to point out. They're they're not regular workers or I don't want to say regular workers, but I want to say that they're not not important enough to question, oh, do you think they should have benefits or not? Do you think they should have um, enough pay? Do you think that? No, no, there's no question about it.
0: And so, John, you had kind of hinted at this, and, and this is a question that uh, you pose uh, as you brought this, uh, this idea, this story forward. If there was an accessible uh, uh, position available within, you know, the service, would you consider volunteering? So I, I want to first uh, offer that up to you.
4: Sure, I think I would absolutely consider volunteering. Now, that said, I I do live in a city. I'm not sure how my services would be wanted, but you know, age old career track of a journalist is that we all end up in comms eventually. Um, I could see myself doing some of that communications or or marketing or or recruitment work within our volunteer um firefighting sector because for me it it it's a public good um in a way that some of the other um you know, firefighting is unlike our police force a lot of the times, is fairly apolitical. Right. Um, and so I, I I could see myself um being able to support uh our firefighters in that way.
0: Well, and, and the other thing too, like I know a couple of firefighters in my life, and it seems that of all the emergency services, firefighters are The the most appreciated and the least divisive of the three pillars of emergency response, from policing, uh, uh, first response, ambulance care, and then firefighting. Firefighters they they get the 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 easiest time in interacting with with the public. Nisreen, what about you? If there was a position that would be accessible, would you consider volunteering or signing up for the force?
8: I take that position just because firefighting like firefighters always fascinated me. However. If I don't see a change, if I see that I'm not being appreciated enough, Mm -hmm. if I see that there are no benefits, if I, uh, see that there's not enough accommodations for my position, I will step away because it, it, it does get discouraging. Um, you feel like you're not appreciated enough, even though you, uh, are on demand. So I'd still take it, but fade away as it goes.
0: Right. Okay. Well, So let's uh, put this conversation to rest. But Nisreen, before I let you go, I have another very important question to ask you. It is our daily poll, because me and John are in disagreement here. What is the most overrated ice cream flavor? John's saying it's vanilla. I'm saying it's chocolate. Cookie dough is also on the list. Or you could go off the board completely and say other. What is the most overrated ice cream flavor?
8: I would say how dare anybody put cookie dough on that list. (laughs) Cookie dough is so underrated. You have no idea. I think if I had to choose, even though I don't think there's an overrated ice cream flavor out there because I love ice cream. I'm like a child out here. Um, If I had to choose, I'd say vanilla. Chocolate is so good. There's so many different types of chocolate as well. Uh, and I want to continue saying cookie dough, you guys should edit that. That should not be on that list. So,
0: okay, this is my rationale why I don't think uh, vanilla should be overrated. It's because chocolate can hide behind very simple, cheap ingredients. As long as it tastes like chocolate, people don't care. You cannot hide behind anything if you are vanilla. You have to have a good quality flavor and ingredients. You need to be able to stand up on your own. That's why I think vanilla is should not be the most overrated ice cream flavor. But we can all agree to disagree, and folks at home can vote on the poll. Nizreen, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day and a wonderful weekend. You too. John, thank you so much for stepping up and filling in as co-host. Have yourself a wonderful day.
4: Thanks, Alex. Thanks for
0: having me. And so as you may have noticed, Ramya Muthan was not here today, but don't fret. We can still let you know what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramya because Apple has made an AI image tool that lets you make edits by describing them. John Beeler tells you all about it in the app update. And there's a new play-by-play voice for the Toronto Blue Jays radio broadcast. There's a unique connection. Brock Richardson gives you the details on our sports update. Plus, on the chatty bookshelf, Ryan Huey is joined by producer and host of the Uncharted podcast, Alan Cross. Catch Kelly and Ramya today, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Coming up though after the break, have you followed AMI on TikTok yet? If you haven't, communication specialist Greg David describes what you're missing, so be sure to tune in. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave. He will be back on Tuesday. So, media programs are always trying to connect with their audience. And AMI, we're no different. Whether it's through the Now with Dave Brown like a program like you're listening and watching now, it's daily bold question, audience engagement is important. Hence why I keep asking you to chime in on the daily poll. But, of course, there are other ways you can reach out and say hi or weigh in with your thoughts about high-profile topics, and that's through social media. And communication specialist Greg David stops by to chat all about TikTok. Dave, uh, Dave, Greg, I'm sorry, how are you? First off, clearly, I got Dave on my mind. (laughs) Uh, How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Alex. How are you? I am not too bad. So uh, how has TikTok been a great platform for AMI to connect with the Canadian pan-disability community?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, TikTok is where everybody's at. They're, you know, whenever you're trying to decide what social media platforms you want to be on, obviously Facebook and X are there, Instagram as well. But TikTok is the newest platform that we've uh, that AMI has joined as a company. And it's been really interesting and fun to engage with people. I mean, since we joined, we already have over 13,000 followers, and we have almost 400,000 likes for our videos. So it's just another way of spreading the word about what AMI does through these little quick bits of, uh, of information information. information we provide little bits of you know promos uh different clips from specials in our tv shows and they're really starting to resonate with our audience
0: well that's obviously great to hear but like what what is the some of the content that's being put up there
2: well, I mean, just recently there was a conversation between yourself and Dave and uh, and uh, John Lepke talking about Air Canada's sunshine uh, sunshine logo uh, sunshine tag program. Uh, Air Canada yeah, the and, lanyards, the lanyard, yeah, the program, lanyards. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that just went up earlier earlier this week, and it's already uh, it's got uh, almost 900 views already. Um, all Access Comedy, which is a special that debuted on AMI TV last week, we've got some clips from that, and it's all not only to engage in the conversation which is what you want to do every day through the daily polls and and through your conversations, but also introduce people to who am I, you know, who we are as a company and the type of programming. That's the hardest thing. Alex is getting the word out about who we are and what we do. And so we're doing it on uh,
0: TikTok. And obviously TikTok is very much a visual platform, visual medium. So how are we ensuring accessibility is being uh, maintained? Because for us at AMI accessibility is, you know, at the forefront of everything that we do.
2: Yeah, and it's a great question. And it's something that uh, you know, thankfully it's something that we already kind of do. Automatically to make things accessible. So, if you're a member of the deaf and hard of hearing community, there are subtitles. But also, the clips that are there, even though they are visual, we always put clips up there where somebody is speaking and having a conversation, or they're describing what is happening in that clip. So, if you're a member of the blind and partially sighted community, you're always going to have, you know, it's always going to be accessible to you. So, really proud of the work that we already do automatically, and it fits perfectly on a platform like TikTok, even though it's visual.
0: Well, that's great to hear, and. Also, too, I'm I'm curious, Dave. Uh, I I did it again, Greg. I am so sorry. Take uh, Monday off, Alex. Uh, yeah, Dore, well, d- take Monday off. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, <laughs> a holiday off. I will it, <laughs> certainly plan to do that. So, in terms of like how AMI approaches the different types of social media, because we are on Facebook, we are on X, we are on TikTok. How how do we kind of um, kind of just incorporate and focus in terms of each specific uh, platform's strength when we're we're posting and creating content to share with our, our fans and audience.
2: That is such a great question. It's a challenge that we face every week in the marketing department is that all of those platforms that you just mentioned are very, very different. So the messaging has to be different. You know, something that you post on Facebook doesn't necessarily translate to X in the messaging and certainly doesn't translate to something on Instagram or TikTok because TikTok, it needs to be kind of fast and, and, and catch your attention right away. Instagram is very, uh, you know, photo and video, um, you know, oriented, but you can be a little bit longer with your clips. So it's it's really, something that that cassandra Chaddock, who is a member of the marketing and communications team that's the thing that she does every day is is figure out which clips are the most appropriate and then how to tweak that messaging for those different platforms because they're all all also different like you said and of course always make them accessible
0: absolutely yeah and all the great work that uh you guys do in communications and marketing always making making us uh, on camera people look good, even when we we inadvertently blurt out the wrong name on broadcast you know i always appreciate greg that you're there to help me look my best and for you at home you can always follow ami on tiktok and searching at accessible media inc on tiktok at accessible media inc now turning from the positive side of uh, media in connection to a story that really has kind of caused a lot of controversy, a lot of reaction, Greg, this has to do with the layoffs at Bell Media. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had talked about the the shakeup uh, on the show last week. You know, among the losses and, and the cuts were 4,800 jobs and uh, the loss of CTV News uh, Noon, newcast across the country and the sale of 45 radio stations. So what are your thoughts about the loss of local TV news during the noon hour across Canada?
2: I mean, you know, as somebody who's worked in the media ever since I got out of college—it's—it's it's just heartbreaking to see that this continues to happen to—to to, you know, journalism and and news reporting and, and that type of thing. So, I mean, uh, it was shock initially, and you know, you look to see if there are some names that you recognize. But when it comes to noon specifically, uh, I mean, you know, for some people, that's the only time that they they are checking out the news—is that you're sitting down and you want to know what's happening in your community. Uh, so that's certainly a big, big loss when it, when it comes to that I think that sometimes we get caught up if you live in a big city like Toronto it's or, or Montreal or Vancouver it's easy to say, well I'm already getting the news that I need but what if you live in a really small community and you're not aware of what's happening in your own community and you're not on social media and maybe you don't have a newspaper because the newspaper got you know it is no longer available in your community either. you know a noontime uh, broadcast is is sometimes the sometimes the only place that you can get it if you're in a smaller community across this country.
0: Well, and one thing too, because I, I, when I was coming out of school, I had part of the internships that I would do. It was working at Global News and and other news yep. outlets that. The the noon-hour broadcasts were always something very unique, because it, it, it was the first opportunity, especially on the TV news side of thing. you're starting to see what the reporters are working on that day. You're getting that first hint of, oh, this is the the stories that they're chasing, the information they're gathering. Whereas if you're getting information right at the, the start of the day or later, either the story is just breaking, there's no actual follow-up or, or context, or— the story's already a few hours old. News uh, at noon seemed to be that first hint of this is what's making news today.
2: You are absolutely right. It's the preview of what's to come at the supper time, and then maybe the late night news as well. Because the morning stuff—that's all covering what's happened overnight, right? So, yeah, you're absolutely right in saying that the—you know—that's that's the preview of what's to come in your community specifically.
0: Yeah, and and talk a bit more about like the impact on on communities because. Uh, one of the positives we did see uh, come out of uh, this uh, 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 these cuts was the fact that a lot of the community radio stations were bought by other uh, corporations trying to uh, kind of keep those afloat or at least uh, carry them on in some way, shape or form. But what is the impact when news is taken out of local or small communities?
2: I mean, you know, I I live in a small town outside of of Ottawa, and so, you know, before that, I was in Toronto, and so it was always about the Toronto news. And it wasn't until I moved here that I realized how important it is to have community news that isn't Toronto-based. When I tune in to watch the news um, uh, out of Ottawa, I'm finding out what's happening, yes, nationally and internationally, but they're always setting aside time to talk about what's happening in the Ottawa area. And so, you know, that's the only way that I found out that after a snowstorm, you need to have your car off. Off the road or you're going to get a ticket because they're plowing that's the only way that you can find out that the rideau canal hasn't you know frozen over enough that people can be on it safely of course there are going to be people that say well you can go to social media for that information and i get that but where else can you sit down for an hour and find out about what's happening not only around the world but in your own backyard And i think that that's what i think people forget about it's very easy to say oh go to facebook or twitter to get your news but you know, for me, it's kind of appointment viewing to to sit down for that hour, hour and a half, and figure out okay, what's going on around here that I need to know about in the Ottawa
0: area, the Gatineau area, or right in my small town. Absolutely. How optimistic are you about the the, the local stories and and the uh, kind of the the community reporting? That That will continue to happen going forward and you know in 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 light of the these radio stations and the community uh, kind of outlets being uh, bought and and maintained, and just more broadly in terms of as the world of news and media coverage evolves.
2: I mean, it's a kind of wait and see approach. I mean, you know, as you mentioned already, there are some radio stations that have been that that CTV is selling off that's being bought by local communities in the area. And they say that they're going to keep all of those people employed and they say that they're going to, you know, keep the, the community news going. So I think on the front of it, you know, when you say things like that, I get really excited and, and hopeful as well. But then, you know, everyone's been talking about how radio isn't making any money, but where do you draw the line at make, you know, obviously it's important to make money. Um, But that's why I have a job, because I want to make some money. But, you know, where do you draw the line at at service and being able to service your community? And I don't know whether social media is the answer to all of those and and to say, well, I'll just I missed that. So I'll just catch up on Twitter or Facebook to find out what my news is. I don't know whether that's a viable option to a traditional news uh, television broadcast or a radio broadcast either.
0: And let's let's dive into the social media side of it because, as you say, you can check out Twitter, you can check out X yeah. or Facebook or or even TikTok, and and a lot of people gather news that way. The yep. challenge is the what news organizations do, what what news programs do. Oftentimes, they they bring in editorial approaches. They they verify, they vet information before, yep. before presenting it. That may not necessarily be happening on social media. So, how can folks, like, balance those issues of getting immediate uh, information, but also identifying and uh, kind of verifying that information is correct
2: yeah it's really, really tough because you know depending on who you follow on on X or Twitter or Facebook or any of the other platforms, you know you're kind of getting that one side of the story, and you know especially when you you know if 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 you are of the mind that if it isn't what you believe in, then it's fake news. I think it's really really hard to 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 fight that. But I think if you really want to find balanced stories, you need to find different sources. So you may follow let's say the Toronto Star. I'm just picking that out mm-hmm. out of the air. You might want to go to the Toronto Star and read a story. But then you might want to go the the Globe and Mail and, and read a story that's that's similar to that about that same topic. Maybe you want to go to CNN. Maybe you want to go to Fox News. Um, to, you know, check out a few different sources, you know, to, to look for to try and get the information. I think that that's the safest thing. It used to be that you could just say that you could tune into Canadian media and they would tell you both sides of the story. But as we're seeing, the challenge is also the clickbaitness. Uh, you know, people are trying to make the stories really exciting to get people to watch or to click on that link. So it's becoming tougher to do that. So I would say check out multiple sources. So that you get a more rounded reporting of the topic that you want to learn more about.
0: Yeah, that, that's always such a, a, a great point, point. and that was something I know going through my media program and journalism program. That was always something, even if you're just trying to source news or information. That was always presented as you should do this because even you know, even the best sources and information, there's inherent biases. There's there's conscious, unconscious biases. Sure. So having a variety of sources from a variety of locations often serves. Well, Greg, thank you so much for, for bringing these two stories forward. Before I let you go, though, I've yeah. been asking everyone this because it is the Friday of a long weekend. I like to have some fun before we enjoy our family day here in Ontario. What is the most overrated ice cream flavor out there this is kind of spurred from a a, a survey that found that um, chocolate chip has been dropping in popularity so is it vanilla is it chocolate is it cookie dough or other we had eliza rocco from the control room chime in and saying it should be mint chocolate should be on the list she thinks that is overrated i tend to disagree my choice was chocolate but what is yours Uh, Overrated,
2: I would say Rocky Road, for sure. Um, As a longtime buyer of uh, Baskin-Robbins ice cream, I never understood why my dad would get Rocky Road because I can't, like, chocolate ice cream with chocolate chips in it, but then there's nuts in there, too. I never really understood that one, so I would vote for that, and I can say that as the person who posts the Facebook poll, Mm -hmm. we've already got some really interesting answers, and I won't spoil them there because I know that you want to talk about it. The conversation will come up on Tuesday, but some really interesting answers answers on facebook so head to our facebook page and vote on this too
0: greg you always do such a great job you just <laughs> tee up the uh the promotion you got people to get engaged it's it's almost like this is your job or something as a communication specialist go figure
2: it's crazy out of getting out of college in 1991 it's always been about neither promoting myself or something else so
0: it's just <laughs> become second nature by now Greg, thank you so much. I appreciate you chatting a bit more uh, than uh, normal with me. Have yourself a wonderful day and have yourself a wonderful weekend as well. You too. Thanks a lot, Alex. Yeah, That is Greg David, communications specialist with AMI. And again, be sure to sign up on our TikTok account and, and follow us. Tons of great content getting put up there every single day. And you can do so by searching on TikTok at Accessible Media Inc. At Accessible Media Inc. And also remember to chime in on our daily polls on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. as well, or on X at Accessible Media. Well, as I mentioned, that is all the time we have on the show today. And it's all the time we have on the show this week. We are off on Monday because of the holiday, but don't worry. We'll be back on Tuesday, and Dave will be here. I, I briefly just want to thank all the guests we had on the show today, Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta on the news panel, and also saying a very special thank you to Elizabeth Moeller and John Lucky, who were filling in as co-hosts this week, doing a fantastic job while I was stepping in to the hosting chair. It's not always easy, so we like to share some extra love to them and on Tuesday's edition we got another uh, version of the news quiz Alicia Yardley Karen McGee and myself we will battle it out to see who has been following the news closely and that is now with Dave Brown weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI TV and streaming in amiplus.ca so It's Friday, as we always like to do. I just shared some love to all the people who worked on the show this week and filled in. We also like to share some love with the folks behind the scenes. So, say it with me. Let's roll those credits. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host, producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter Laura Bain. Contributors Ramia Muthan, Nizreen Abdelmajid. Senior show producer Andrika Delanerel. Visual producer Bruce McClarian. Producers Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion Jones, Bob Pagrak. Production assistant Hinchley Juko. TV producer Mark Phoenix. Director Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse. Control room operators Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Productions, Paula Denine, Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback. 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024. Accessible Media, Inc. An AMI original production.